0: Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today, I have another in-between episode, and the topic is women's suffrage. There are several great podcasts on women's fight for the right to vote. The show notes have links to suffrage episodes from the History Chicks and Stuff You Missed in History Class podcasts where you can learn more about the lives of Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Victoria Woodhull, Frederick Douglass, and other big names in the suffrage movement. This podcast episode, a mini-episode, presents the words of men and women who are a lot less famous. Mini-episodes don't have as much background research because they're about topics that are well covered elsewhere. The next regular episode will be about women's relief work in World War American women gained the right to vote in 1920, nine months after the end of that war. Though the fight for women's suffrage had been going on for decades, the war likely gave the movement a boost. While we know from the battle for civil rights that war-related service does not guarantee equal rights, women's undeniable personal sacrifice and their vital support of the economy during the war made it harder and harder to plausibly argue against women's full citizenship. Still, many did try to make the argument, both men and women, and their words are read today, too. The first letter is actually a petition to Congress for, quote, the removal of political disabilities, one of many written from a template circulated by the National Women's Suffrage Association. The instructions recommended that petitions be submitted by, quote, two or more well-known women citizens of each town in your state. Each woman should, quote, Fill the blanks each with her own full name, state, and town. Prepare two copies, one for the House of Representatives and one for the Senate. Let these individual petitions be in handwriting, assigning whatever personal reason may be chosen for wishing to vote. January 4, 1878, For the Relief from Political Disabilities To the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States in Congress assembled, Mrs. Kate T. F. Cornell, a citizen of the United States, and a resident of the state of Nebraska, county of Thayer, town of Alexandria, hereby respectfully petition your honorable body for the removal of her political disabilities, and that she may be declared invested with full power to exercise her right to self-government at the ballot box, all state constitutions or statute laws to the contrary, notwithstanding." I claim that we have been oppressed in the past by man-made laws, and that as we have to be subject to the laws of our country, it would be just and right that we should have a voice in making them. I pay tax, and am not satisfied with what is done with the money. I hold it is my God-given right to say what shall be done with my earnings. I have signed the 16th Amendment to the Federal Constitution prohibiting the several states' from disfranchising United States citizens on account of sex, Mrs. Kate T. F. Cornell. The next letter was written by a Kansas woman named Effie Frost to Lucy Johnston, president of the Kansas Equal Suffrage Association. In the letter, we can see some of the overlap between the suffrage and temperance movements. Mrs. Frost hopes that women will use the vote against such places as the pool hall in her neighborhood. Verdi, Kansas, November 6, 1912 Dear Friend, While I am grieved that the Democrats were elected, I am glad there are so many Democrats who are loyal to their women and are willing that they shall be their helpmeet in the use of the ballot. And now that we have the weapon, I pray that we may never falter in pushing forward and use it in destroying all vice-breeding places. You can imagine how i feel when i pass by the pool hall on my way to the post office the pool hall is so close to the post office that you cannot go there without hearing the noise and often the vilest language and see my sunday school children in there i would run in and bring them out but that would not do for their fathers frequent such places and all i can do is tell them in not a too direct manner where such things will lead them as you know i have a residence in junction city And would be so glad to stay there but no one will keep up the sunday school here and it is the only thing the children have to give them any knowledge of the bible so i have to be here every sabbath several attempts to organize a church have been made by different ministers without success the people openly say they are willing for their children to attend sunday school but they the oldest ones are too busy to attend church we have had some of the ablest men here without an audience so you see how critical the situation is. I have thus far been treated with respect in the Sunday school, but I know of the fate of other workers, and I'm always expecting my turn will soon come. Oh, I wish they would pass a law forbidding pool halls and such things in any of the villages where there are no police protection. May the time soon come when the billiard hall, a reading room, will be. I went down and saw the vote canvassed and was surprised at the number of votes thrown out. Some of my lady friends wanted to go, but were afraid the men would not treat us right, so I went alone and was very kindly treated. They expected us and had provided candy. Thanking you for all your efforts and rejoicing with you in the victory, I am affectionately your friend, Effie B. Frost. I'm next going to read from a 1911 pamphlet written by Reverend Stephen Esty, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Topeka. Estes starts with a history of the development of democratic government all the way back to the Magna Carta, and says that women's suffrage is the, quote, logical and inevitable outcome of our democratic principles of government. I'll read two excerpts. Women should be given the ballot because our civilization needs her moral power and help. United States Senator Hoare says that if the state is to do nothing but to, quote, raise and discipline armies to build jails and establish police courts, the less women have to do with it, the better. But if the state is to so use its forces as to put an end to these things, if education, justice, science, art, charity, the promotion of commerce and manufactures, the healing of disease, the promoting of the welfare of the people in every direction, be functions to which its great forces are to be devoted, then it is indispensable that women should have in its management her full and equal share. Our city slums, child labor, the social evil, political corruption, all show that man has failed a full success in the highest things of government. Everyone realizes that an influx of conscience and morality and high ideals is what our body politic must have to give it power enough to right the evils which afflict it. This influx of moral power can come only from the woman's vote. We need not prophesy any millennium or utopia as the result of giving women the ballot, it is enough to claim a sane, wholesome improvement in our national housekeeping, such as would come to a home kept for a long time by the father and boys on the return of the mother to set to rights the results of masculine housekeeping. S. D. argues that if a woman's place is truly in the home, she should have the ballot in order to protect that home. She should have a say in food inspection laws, in tariffs that affect the cost of the food and clothing that she buys, and in policies that affect the education of her children. And if she is responsible for the moral development of her children, she should have a say in, quote, whether the environment in which she rears them shall include saloons, gambling dens, and body houses. Because woman is the homemaker, she is entitled to the ballot, else the title simply mocks her. As a wage earner, woman is entitled to the ballot. When she has it, unjust discrimination against her in the matter of wages will cease, and not until then. In the last place, women ought to have the ballot because it is just to give it to them. The president of Bryn Mawr College relates the galling incident which converted her mother to woman suffrage. She was interested in securing more humane treatment for the poor girls who were arrested and left in police stations. One day, when she was being driven fruitlessly about from one politician to another— she had to stop at a polling booth to give her ignorant colored coachman, who could neither read nor write, opportunity to vote for the very men she had been petitioning in vain, because she had no vote. There is no justice in such humiliating conditions as these, and yet every educated woman is, at some time or other, sure to meet just such humiliation." The end of that quote highlights the tension between advocates for women's rights and African Americans' rights. Frederick Douglass called it a great schism. At an 1869 convention of the American Equal Rights Association, Douglass had argued that the organization should support the 15th Amendment, which would give black men the right to vote, while also continuing to fight for women's suffrage. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's response was, think of Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Young Tongue." who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic, who never read the Declaration of Independence or Webster's spelling book, making laws for Lydia Marie Child, Lucretia Mott, or Fanny Kemble. In a 2011 piece for The Atlantic, ta Coates discussed some of the layers underneath the split that develops between the feminist and civil rights movements. It's definitely worth reading. Obviously, there were plenty of Americans, male and female, who were against women's suffrage. The governor of Kansas received the following letter from Mrs. G. Monroe asking him to veto a bill that would allow women to vote in municipal elections. The N-word is bleeped out, and she wrote briefly, Topeka, February 11th, 1887. To Governor Martin, Dear Sir, 10,000 women who have enough rights without voting and also plenty to do to attend to their own affairs without meddling with men's business, ask you to veto this suffrage bill. We don't want to vote and to go to polls with and all kinds of women. Mrs. G. Monroe and thousands of others. The governor did sign the bill. Many, much longer statements against women voting were compiled into the 1916 book Anti-Suffrage Essays by Massachusetts Women. The book was, quote, gratefully dedicated to the 295,939 Massachusetts men who, on Election Day, 1915, endorsed the anti-suffrage sentiments of the women of Massachusetts. One of the essays was entitled, The True Function of the Normal Woman. The author was Anna Hollowell Davis, member of the Brookline Civic Society, the North Bennett Street Industrial School Association, and the Massachusetts Peace Association. The essay states, The whole question of suffrage and anti-suffrage is significant chiefly as it affects the married woman with children and a home. For if there is any elemental fact on which to plant our feet, it is that the normal woman is a wife and mother and homemaker. But is not the contention of the suffragists fundamentally based upon the circumstances of the woman who is not leading this normal life, who is unmarried, who has no children, or is not making a home and bringing up her children herself? It is in planning for these exceptional women, as I think they do, that the suffragist leaders tend to ignore the truly representative women, the majority. Do we not suspect, indeed, that they are turning to new ideals because they have never tried the old? As Gilbert Keith Chesterton says, quote, The ideal house, the happy family, is now chiefly assailed by those who have never known it, or by those who have failed to fulfill it. Numberless modern women have rebelled against domesticity in theory because they have never known it in practice. But, the suffragists ask, granting that your woman of, quote, normal life is in the majority and doesn't want the vote, oughtn't she to want it? Casting a ballot takes next to no time, and that is all she needs to do. Most men do no more than that. But men ought to do more. That is just the point. That is just why corrupt government has been fastened on our cities. The Tammany leaders do more. They give all their time to politics. But the reform vote cannot, except occasionally, be got to the polls in sufficient numbers. And too few of the best men will run for office. If women are simply going to aggravate these conditions, if the normal representative woman isn't going to vote and hold office, and the non-representative exceptional woman is, Where is the advantage to the state of adding women to the electorate? Probably, however, rather than have this happen, the representative woman would feel that she must enter the lists. In competition with abnormal or unscrupulous women, she would be forced to vote and hold office. More than just adding to the polls, she would have to think, read, and talk politics as men do, or ought to do. The whole question here is, is it better for her to do this, or to do the things which men don't do. For one person can't do it all well. A good mother of three or four children already has more than she can do well. If she takes up this whole new department of life and thought, I am convinced she will have to let something else go. And already under the influence of the feminist movement, that something else seems to be her home. So, this is what the anti-suffragists feel most keenly, that once the franchise is imposed as a duty, They would have to do the things which men are already doing, and doing as well as the women could do them. That they would no longer be free to do what they think is the higher work for them, as women. Therefore, when a suffragist tells me she has the right to vote, I say that, in the name of the best interest of the community, I have the right not to vote. I often wonder what people of the past, if they could travel forward in time, would think about their previous positions on certain issues. What would Mrs. Davis think of 2019, and what did she think of the 19th Amendment, which gave her the right to vote four years after that essay was published? I also wonder, if we could travel forward in time, on what issues would we look back to 2019 with a different view? The petition of Mrs. Kate T. F. Cornell is in the public domain and available at docsteach.org. The letters of Effie Frost and Mrs. G. Monroe belong to the Kansas State Historical Society. They are also the source for Pastor Estee's pamphlet. The Anti-Suffrage Essays by Massachusetts Women is in the public domain and available at multiple sites, including gutenberg.org. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.